recording. recording. Okay, you say something, and then I'm going to respond immediately. Mm, saying something. Okay, me too. What? It helps me. When it's, like, very clear that we're not just talking over each other, then it helps me know that we're in sync. If that makes sense. Because oftentimes, when I, like, start the sound and I'm trying to line us up, we just talk oh. over each other for, like... We're like... Bah! Yeah, for, like, a yeah. lot of time. Um, and then I can't figure out if we're actually lined up, so it helps. You're listening to Something Weird. I'm Brooke, and here's our co-host, Anna. Hello. Here you'll find semi-regular dialogue on all things paranormal and even sometimes just a little bit weird. We're lifelong friends who've had an affinity for the strange since we first met, and now we're here to adventure into the abyss with you. Each week, one of us will dig into a paranormal tale as we ponder the ultimate question, do we want to believe? And it's back to me this week. Ooh, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm actually really, when I had my little mishap with my last topic that I tried. Lollery. Yeah, it was just like... I still think that it's really interesting and I think it's like important to talk about my goal for it was to talk about what that family did and like what she did outside of the context of it just being a scary story. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to actually get into what happened, how that was possible and like what these people had to endure under her, whatever you call that. But it was just really hard, and so much of the information out there um, is totally, like, folklore and really, like, exaggerated and really gruesome, which may or may not be true, and it was hard to find, like, true facts. I would say it's worth looking into because you watch shit like American Horror Story, which is just, like, so over-the-top and gruesome and, like, terrible, but that stuff was actually happening. I, I was just kind of torn up about it. But I do think it's worth knowing that that happened. Yeah, definitely. And just being aware. Yeah, exactly. Maybe in the future when I can spend more time really researching and not rely on fucking like scary storybooks to get my information, then I'll try to tackle it. But with that said, this one just popped into my mind and I was like, oh, oh yes, this is... A great one. So I'm just going to jump right in. My voice is already frying, so (laughs) apologies. It's so funny, actually, that you mentioned that. I was on the phone for, like, maybe an hour with my mom yesterday, and by the end of it, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my voice. And I realized it's because I talk so very little. Yeah, like, I'm out of practice of talking. I'm actually kind of nervous to be, like, back in front of students and talking for an hour and a half at a time. Ugh. Those days, by the end of the day, I'm, like, actually struggling to speak. So I'm not excited about that. In January of 1959, 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov led a group of eight young Soviet hikers comprised of seven men and two women, mostly university students, up into the Ural Mountains in Russia and attempting to reach Mount Ortorton from a small settlement of Vizai. In the end, it would take more than three months to locate all nine of their bodies. These nine hikers were found about six miles away from their destination, in a forest almost a mile away from their campsite, with no skis, shoes, or coats, and approximately in negative 30 degree Fahrenheit weather. Two of them had fractured skulls, two or more had major chest fractures, and one hiker was missing her tongue. Soviet investigators listed the cause of death as, quote, a compelling natural force and abruptly closed the case not even a month later. And this Uh, is the tragic tale of the Diet Love Pass incident. No, this story, every time I read about it, hear about it, just... It's... Gives me the chills. It's baffling in the best way. And I swear, every time that I look about it, same, like read about it, hear about it, whatever, I come out with a different conclusion of what happened to them. I'm curious to see where you stand. Yes. I actually don't know where I stand. Okay. So. Well, I'll give you some (laughs) options so we can decide together. 
If you're unfamiliar, listen in. I'll take you through it. So a little bit of background on who these hikers were. So again, this is in 1959, Soviet Union, and it was a group of mostly college-age students, and they were embarking on a skiing expedition across the northern Ural Mountains. According to law officials, documents were found in the tent of the expedition that suggested why they were on this was to commemorate the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So it's possibility that they were the government actually sent them on this particular expedition but it's not totally clear the head of the expedition was igor dietlov he was a 23 year old radio engineer and he was a student at the ural polytechnical institute he assembled a group of nine others for the trip and of those there were again mostly students or peers of his at the university each member of the group which consisted of eight men and two women, was considered to be a very experienced hiker and ski tour person. If it means anything to you, they were considered grade two hikers. It does not mean anything to me, but I wanted to confirm that they weren't just pulling. He wasn't just calling his buddies, asking them to go on a hike. Like, they are... They knew... They know what they're doing. Yeah, they absolutely knew what they were doing. And actually, by going on this particular expedition, they would have been qualified to become grade three hikers and, like, get that certification. They, they're experts in this sort of recreation, I guess. At the time, a grade three was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union. It required the candidates to traverse 300 kilometers or about 190 miles. So... They were going to do it by going on this expedition. Oh, my word. Yeah. 190 miles. Give me some reference. Give me, like, a um, a state-to-state reference. Going to Portland? From Tacoma? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because Portland's... Well, <laughs> that's also flat ground. In a car. You're not in the snow. Yeah. I'm thinking even if you did the walk, though, like, that wouldn't be so bad. Mm, but again... That would be hard. It, it, yeah. <laughs> it would not be great. But we're also, again, talking about a freezing mountain yeah, like, where there aren't McDonald's. The Ural Mountains is northern Russia. It's Ugh. it's not... I mean, it does kind of span the border um, of Russia, like, into Europe. But it's not an easy terrain by any means. The expedition itself, their goal was to reach Gora Otorten, and that is the top of the mountain. And by the end of their journey, they were just six miles from the top of that mountain, and that's where their bodies were found. So they had made it a very significant portion up the mountain and like through their kind of set path. And ultimately, mm-hmm. kind of the thing to take away, which we mentioned, is that this group of nine people. 10 originally that they were not fucking around the route was hard they knew that it was hard but they had the skills to complete this and there there was no doubt that they would be coming back so the expedition itself what's known from records is that they arrived by train to Ivdel which is a town at the center of the northern province of Serdlowski I believe and that was early morning of January 25th they then took a truck to Vizai, and that's a village that is considered to be the last inhabited settlement to the north. So ultimately, that was going to be the last actual village of their expedition. So it's the last place that they're going to see anyone, interact with people, etc. Mm-hmm. So while they're there in Vizai, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep up their energy levels for the following day's hike, which should have been the end. It's a lot of bread. Yeah. I know. And, like, was there anything else to eat? I guess, though, gosh, you think about how, um, not that I'm a hiker or anything, but, you know, they have those little gel packs and all these Mm. weird things that you can make now for long hikes. Mm -hmm. And I guess then, I mean, bread would have... I mean, all those things are carbs. Yeah. Carbs are what give you energy. So I guess loading up on bread isn't the worst idea. So on January 27th, so two days later, they began their trek towards Gora Otorten. 
On January 28th, one of the members by the name of Yuri Yerdin suffered from several health ailments. He had rheumatism and also a heart defect. And he realized oh. that his knee and other joint pain was too much and he would not be able to continue the hike. So he turned back, but the remaining nine of the group continued forward. And I'm just like, why? You had rheumatoid arthritis, arthritis and a heart defect? Like, I know people can overcome a lot, but like, maybe I'm being too judgmental. Are you just a masochist <laughs> at that like, point? Like, that just, it's cold. Uh, yeah. But in the end, it proved too difficult, and he had to turn around. So then, finally, at that point, we're left with our nine. According to diaries and cameras that were found around their campsite, investigators were able to route the day leading up to the incident. So it's now January 31st, and the group had arrived at the edge of the Highland area and began to prepare for climbing. Just kind of imagine they're at, like, the foothill of the mountain, and they're getting ready for, like, mm -hmm. that last ascent. Oh, gosh, so close. Yeah, so, so close. In a wooden valley, they gathered up their, their different supplies, their food, their equipment, everything that they would need for their trip up and their trip back down the mountain. On the following day, which we're now at February 1st, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems, according to the diary entries, that they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. However, they started to run into weather issues. Conditions were getting pretty bad on the mountain. Snowstorms were coming in, which meant that visibility was decreasing. So they decided to instead stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain. They could have gone back down. They could have retreated back down the hill mm -hmm. to stay the night and to get out of some of the bad weather. But it's believed, according to diary entries, that... Dietlov, who again is the leader on this expedition, didn't want to lose the altitude that they had already gained. So he made the decision to camp on the side of the mountain. Which, honestly, that kind of... I get it. If you're not concerned about too much, like, yeah, maybe it's going to be a, a bit of a storm, but if you are pretty confident that you can make it through, you don't want to have to backtrack, mm -hmm. that's for sure. But... Well, and it definitely comes... It's a tough... Yeah, it is a tough decision. And there's a lot of, you know, after the fact and when the investigators come in, um, there's a lot of opinion thrown around that it's like, oh, well, this is just because you had a leader who didn't know what he was doing. He made a bad decision. And, like, he set them up for death, essentially. But, again, he's an exceptionally skilled hiker. Like, he has experience... And if he feels that they can do that, I kind of trust his expertise in this situation. Yeah. It was a difference of a mile. So it's not... Oh, it was only a mile? It was only a mile. So there must yeah. have been some reason that he felt camping on the mountain. I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I'll kind of backtrack on that. No, I get but it. I I, I kind of feel, though, like, just for a mile, that's not that much backtracking. But I guess, again, it's very rough terrain, you're in a storm. Well, blah, blah. I guess I guess the other side of that is it is only a mile. It's not like they were six miles up the mountain and he was just like, no, like, I refuse to lose six miles. Like, I refuse to go back down that far and made that decision just because he didn't want to lose six miles, which, like okay, yeah. that might have just been a really bad decision. But if it's like, well, it was only a mile, so he knew he had the option, but he still felt it was safe to stay on the mountain, I would like to think that he, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. But that was his decision, and ultimately it was the wrong decision. Hey, do you remember, it kind of reminds me of, um, do you, you remember the perfect storm? Oh, yeah. So I, I remembered it being way better than it actually was because I, I rewatched it recently mm -hmm. um, and had talked it up a ton and it wasn't that good <laughs> but um, but it's kind of like that you know like he had a lot to the captain had a lot to lose it was like a crap ton of fish mm -hmm. and they they all needed the money so mm -hmm. they kept moving forward um, but they shouldn't have yeah 
And that's when you're like, uh, well, he had a lot to lose, so... Yeah, so he just made yeah, a I, bad call. Um, yeah, there wasn't too much on the line here. Exactly. So that makes me think that there must have been something more going into his decision. Um, and that it, it was probably that he thought it was safe. Before leaving um, for the expedition, Diet Love had agreed that he would send a telegram to the sports club where they left from as soon as the group had returned back to Visay. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th. However, Dyatlov had told Yudin, another one of the um, hikers, that more than likely it was going to take longer than February 12th. So when February 12th came and passed, people weren't that concerned when they hadn't received a telegram. However, the days kept going and there was still no telegram. So on February 20th, the relatives of the hikers demanded that a rescue operation begin. So at first, they sent rescue groups that consisted of volunteer students and teachers. Uh, okay. Yeah, so like clearly they were not that concerned. Students and teachers weren't enough, so they ended up starting or sending army and military forces. And then again, with days passing and no luck finding any of the hikers, they started bringing out planes and helicopters um, and they were ordered to join the rescue operation. Why would they even send students and teachers in the first place f- looking for experienced hikers that had disappeared? Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. So it's pretty much the government was like, well, if you're that worried, go find them. It's like, <sighs> great. It took a total of six days. So on February 26, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on the side of the mountain, and the campsite completely baffled the search party. From what they found on the campsite, this is what we know. On the night of February 2nd, 1959, the skiers set up camp for the final time around 5 p.m. It appeared, from the evidence that was there, that six of the skiers died of hypothermia, and three of them died from injuries. They died separately. Two of them were found under a cedar tree near the remains of a fire. Three others were found in intervals of hundreds of feet from the tree. And four more of them were found in a ravine another 250 feet away. So completely scattered. The two underneath the tree near the fire had burned hands. The four in the ravine weren't found until May 4th, which was three months after the incident. And they had searched that area... Mm -hmm deeply the first time as deeply as they could but you're also pushing into may so like snow melt and the terrain is going to change so they were able to uncover them all of the dead seemed to have donated some of their clothing items to the living so the different hikers ludmila her foot was wrapped in a piece of yuri's pants semyon was found wearing dubinina's hat and a coat and some garments had cut had cuts in them as though they were forcibly removed. So it appeared that as people were dying off, clothing items were being either torn off or given to other people. But like, what? Just turn back at that point. Yeah. If anyone's dying. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Sorry. There, it, it just, there are so many things that I just can't wrap my head around. Yeah. And it just gets weird. I can't weirder. comment on all of them. And consistent with the party, there were eight or nine sets of footprints that were found in the snow. So that would account only for the skiers and not suggesting another party's involvement, at least on foot. There was no sign of a struggle or any other human or animal approaching the campsite. And there was a snowstorm on the night of February 2nd. And because of that, it was determined that it was the snowstorm and the elements that killed them. Uh, okay. So... The search party, the investigators that go, that's pretty much what we walk away with. Campsite itself that the rescuers found, again, it's on the slope of the mountain, and the mountain is called Dead Mountain, suiting. Mm. And it was at about 3,600 feet. Despite the nasty weather and the slower progress that they had made, their diary entries reflected nothing but high spirits. No distress, no fighting with each other. Nothing that would say they were in trouble. They had even produced a little newspaper about the trip that they titled The Evening or Toten, and it bore the headline, From now on, we know that the snowmen exist. 
What? Yeah. The article then goes on to what? say, <laughs> quote, they can be met in the northern Urals next to the Otorten Mountain. Most write this off as a joke and say, oh, they were just messing around. It was just students being students. I guess newspaper kind of diary entries is a typical kind of Soviet pastime, you could say, or like way of communicating. So they were just, they wrote it off as just a joke. Journaling's important, mm -hmm. but no one does it anymore, which is bad. But I do love that they put together a little, a little newspaper. It's just fun. Yeah. Like that just seems like a fun thing to do. Yeah. And, and again, like they're doing this stuff. They're doing diary entries. They have their little newspaper and they're doing all of this right up until the end. So it's really pointing towards something happened and something changed extremely quickly. And there's yeah. very, very little explanation as to what that may have been. Well, it's kind of like, I mean, I guess it's our social media and how we record and how we kind of keep track of everything now. Mm -hmm. Be like someone was tweeting up until this point, someone was posting on their Instagram story or whatever, and then all of a sudden they all just stop. Right. Yeah, and that's pretty much what the search party and those original investigators found. And in the end, the official report would say that the first five bodies that were found, because again, the other four weren't found until months later, that the official cause of death was hypothermia. And that was it. Case closed. However, there's a lot more to consider. Investigations continued, mostly being pushed by family members. And more and more details started to come out about what may have been happening during this incident, as it's referred to. Well, yeah. If you were a family member, you'd be like, uh, what? Yeah. No. They'll all just die at once from hypothermia? No. There's, there's just too much. Some of the other details that started to emerge that had the families questioning, such as the skier's tent. It was determined in the official report that it had been cut from the inside and all of their stuff was still inside of it. So it begs the question, if five of these hikers, at least, die from exposure and have nothing with them, when their tent is full of gear, why wouldn't they grab the gear? Why would they not go back to the tent? That and why was it cut open from the yeah. inside? So like, that makes it the appearance is that they left. They chose to leave that tent as quickly as possible and chose to leave everything behind. They were getting the fuck out yeah, of there. Exactly. Couldn't even find the zipper. Just no, tore just it open. Get the fuck like, out. That like oh. gives me chills. Also, one of the hikers. Zolotaryev, I think, fled the camp with his camera, but no gear. Only thing that he chose to grab was his camera. Another hiker, Rustem Slobodin, had a small crack in his skull, but it was ruled that the elements were what killed him, not the fracture. And there were also no external wounds that were discovered on his body. However, his skull was cracked. What? Two other hikers, Dilatov, who is our main guy, and another hiker, Kolmogorova, seem to have died in a pose that indicated that they were trying to return back to the tent. To get their gear? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Grab a jacket? So that's just the original five bodies that they found. All scattered, nothing makes sense, nothing of what you would expect if individuals are caught in a storm and dying of exposure. You would find them all huddled in the tent on top of each other, right. trying to stay warm. Right. That's what you would think, but no, that's not what happened. I guess I don't really know much about any of this, though, either. So that's just the original five bodies. And then they found the four in the ravine. As the four bodies in the ravine are examined, this is what they find. Dubanina and Zolaturev had fractured ribs. Nikolai had a major skull fracture. One of the investigators compared the force required to injure a human so severely that it must have been in a car crash. The injuries were absolutely not caused by force exerted by another human being. 
Once again, there was no evidence of soft tissue damage on the bodies, and it was as though the skiers' bodies were crushed by pressure. What? Yeah. All four of them had injuries. No bruising, no lacerations, no... Just their bones crushed. Their bones. Yeah. Also, Dubinina was found to be missing her tongue completely. The theory was that another party was possibly involved and that some altercation took place. But who would have done that? Why would they have done it? And why was there zero evidence of any other human beings being near that camp? Also, your tongue? Yeah. For someone's tongue to go missing, I guess that's what happened. It's not something that accidentally like gets torn off if you're in a a fight or um like a wild animal attacks you and just takes your tongue i don't know it, uh, i mean she you, you specifically have to go in there and like get it you could i mean you certainly could make the argument that she could have been seizing um and bitten it off she could have been hit by something or like had force like hit by a force so hard that she bit down on her tongue and bit it off but it looked as though it was removed not just bitten off but like the entire tongue was removed so it kind Sliced. of took away any possibility that this was just um natural incident right or occurrence or, or something because of the trauma that her body was going through like it, it didn't appear that way And then the cherry on top of all of this, from what they're finding, is that some of the skier's clothing was found to contain significant levels of radiation. Ooh. Aliens. Aliens. Yeah, radiation from what What? else? What else? Aliens. Oh, man. I love it. I don't love it. That's awful. But, yeah, whatever. I love it. (laughs) In the end, again, even after the examination of the bodies, the discovery of the four other bodies, there was a, quote, complete absence of a guilty party, and the inquest was officially closed in May of 1959, only a few short weeks after the last four bodies had been discovered. They were, the files were archived away and classified. When they finally became accessible in the 1990s, which is post-Soviet era, it was found that many parts of those original documents were missing. So they're covering <laughs> something the up. So without any real or public answers to what happened or why the bodies were found the way that they were found and many of the other questions that we're kind of left with, there are many theories that kind of flourished around the incident for decades. One of those theories had to do with the fact that orange spheres were sighted in the sky on the night Dyatlov group died, and these were spotted by another group of campers that were about 50 miles away from the scene. Some would say that these were just R-7 intercontinental missile launches, and said, no big deal, not worth looking into. Why? Okay, everything's worth looking into at this point. Exactly. Others said that because these could have been missile launches... It could have also been Soviet nuclear testing, and that's why they found radiation on the skier's clothing. It was also speculated that because of that nuclear testing, the group could have drank melted, contaminated snow, causing deaths, or even some sort of, like, insanity, which is why you see a lot of weirdness around the deaths and the bodies. Okay. There was also a 12-year-old eyewitness who attended five of the skiers' funerals and claimed that the bodies had a, quote, deep brown tan. Who is this 12-year-old? I don't really know, but he pops back up later. How does he know everyone? He just shows up at the funeral and he's like, their skin doesn't look right, and again is pointing back to radiation poisoning. There's some theories. There's definitely speculation of UFO encounter. Also, people are pointing back to, what about the newspaper? They specifically call out the snowmen of the Ural Mountains. So could it have been an attack? Okay, if we're ever on some expedition, and when I say expedition, I mean couple-hour road trip, 
and we write some magnum opus about an encounter. We promise you, listeners, if it's a joke, we'll write. This is a joke. This is is not real. (laughs) Because I don't want any of this uh, back and forth flip-flopping, not knowing whether they were serious or just having a fun time talking about the snowman. Yeah. I mean, it's been decades upon decades of theories. However, it's not just local townspeople talking. There's actually been a number of separate investigations that have gone into this to try to determine once and for all what the, quote, official cause of death was. So I'm going to take you through kind of the big ones, and then we'll see if you agree. This one's actually really recent. This is this current year of 2020. One of the deputy head of the Ural's Federal District, he made the announcement that an avalanche is to be the, quote, official cause of death for the Diet Love Group in 1959. And he explains it. I did read. Oh, you saw that? I mean, I just read that. I didn't dig any deeper into it. I'm just going to take this excerpt of kind of the original explanation of why. And he's not alone in thinking that it was an avalanche. This is kind of some of the, the reasoning as to why. So it says, the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods when the trees would help slow the oncoming snow. In the darkness of the night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed but it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of their clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four meters of snow, about 13 feet. That could account for the extreme pressure and the fracturing and breaking of bones. Okay, well... One thing, has that researcher ever made a fire? Because you don't just automatically burn Burn your your hands. hands Yeah. That's kind of like, I mean, that's all reasonable. It's all logical. But then many people would come back saying, no. And there's evidence to contradict it. Some of which is, the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place on that night or any time around. An avalanche would have left certain patterns in debris distributed over a wide area. There was no evidence of that. Yeah, that's also a pretty big thing to have no evidence of an avalanche. Yeah. Come on. Like, have you seen an avalanche shoot? <laughs> like, what remains after an avalanche happens? I've just seen, you know, on National Geographic or whatever, but, like, the force of it is... It's very It's like a tsunami. Well, and they also bring up the fact that the bodies that were found, all of them, were only under a shallow layer of snow. If an avalanche had actually occurred, they would have been swept away even further and would have been buried under significant amounts of snow. And wouldn't they have, like, they would have suffocated. Like, that would have probably been the the ultimate reason of death, unless they hit their head on something, which there would have been evidence of other than a fractured skull, but no other, nothing on their skin. I don't know. You Asphyxiation would have been something you could call out, right? I would assume so, but I'm no expert. So I don't, I don't know. You're not. I'm not. Uh. It's also been stated that over a hundred separate expeditions to that region have been held and none of those groups have ever come into conditions that could create an avalanche and like you do need very specific conditions for an avalanche ultimately there's a lot of stuff pointing towards this doesn't make sense no shit and another point which we kind of talked about in the decision for them setting up camp on the slope of the mountain people say diet love he was a very experienced skier and hiker and he would have known not to do that Like, he would have known that the conditions existed and that that would be dangerous for the group. 
So there's just yeah. too much to say otherwise, I guess. Yes. It just seems like, yes, I understand the appeal and the logic of it being an avalanche. There are multiple reasons why that would make sense, but there are enough, like you said, contradictions that just don't make sense. You just can't ignore them. Another potential, I'm cutting out quite a bit. There are multiple separate investigations that came to the same conclusion of it was bad weather and an avalanche that caused this to happen. And like, yeah, but there's still all of the same problems of the amount of snow that was covering the bodies, uh, the positioning of the bodies, the decision-making of the group. There's just all sorts of problems. Another theory is it could have been due to catabatic winds, which I had never heard of before, but it is mm. a popular theory. Catabatic winds, it's some, you know, there's the upper and the lower north stream, whatever, and you get this like insanely violent and powerful wind storm. In 2019, there was a Swedish-Russian expedition to the site, and after their official investigation, they proposed the incident could have been due to a catabatic wind. So what could have happened is that a sudden, very violent, strong wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent, and the most rational course of action would be for the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter among the tree line. There was also a torch left turned on at the top of the tent, which possibly could have been left intentionally so that the hikers could find their way back to the tent once the wind subsided. Their investigation proposed that the group of hikers constructed two bivouac shelters, which is like where you just dig into the snow. But unfortunately, one of them collapsed, leaving four of the hikers buried with the violent injuries observed. Again, having the snow kind of crushing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Who also has the time and ability to build one of these fortresses in the midst of this insane wind? And, and like, why wouldn't it just blow away? Why and how would they have, again, the time and the ability to bury their tent in the snow? If they were And put a flashlight on top right, of it. If they were in, like, such a rush to get out and, like find refuge in the tree line like it just maybe i'll put a jacket on too i don't know okay okay that is that's a theory theory. there's more so another theory infrasound in donnie elker's book dead mountain he proposed perhaps the strong winds on the mountain created a sort of vortex which can then produce infrasound which is capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. According to Eicher's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. He claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time that they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure. However, in the darkness, they were unable to return to their shelter and then died of exposure. The traumatic injuries suffered by the victims in the ravine are simply the result of their stumbling over the ledge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. But again, they had no tissue damage. They would have been splattered open if they landed on rocks. Or at least bruised, like, at the very least. I mean, this is a theory. I. Uh, it's interesting. I, I kind of actually lean into the idea of if you were somewhere and you didn't know about, I didn't know about infrasound. Neither. You just, just kind of go a little bit wild in the mind, I guess. Mm-hmm. You would not know what to do. You would probably do some weird things. Like, that makes sense. You are like, I got to get out of here, this claustrophobic tent. But for everyone to be experiencing that in... But I guess maybe, I was going to say, for everyone to experience that in the same way, that would be strange, but maybe they were witnessing someone else experiencing it more, they were confused, right? and then 
freaked out because of it. Again, it's a theory. And I have one more. This is like the final big theory, which may potentially explain everything. Bear with me. It could have been all due Soviet military tests. There is some speculation that the campsite fell within the path of Soviet parachute mine exercises. Parachute mines are essentially explosions that go off like midair. So this theory alleges that the hikers were woken by loud explosions. They freaked out. They booked it out of their tent, shoeless, in a panic, and found themselves unable to return to their tent to get everything that they need. After some members froze to death, attempting to endure whatever was happening, others were able to take their clothing, but in the end were fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. And there are actual records that parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military were taking place in that particular area. And because parachute mines detonate while they're still in the air, rather than striking the earth and then going off, they actually can produce the type of physical injury that was seen on some of the hikers, where you have more internal damage than you do external trauma. This theory would also coincide with the reports of seeing glowing orbs floating around the sky that night within the vicinity Mm -hmm. and would explain away the hikers that say that they got photographs of them. These could have just been either military aircrafts or the actual mines coming down. This theory also would say that it was because of scavenging animals that Dumadina lost her tongue. It's one particular animal. Let's open her mouth. In a very kind of similar theory, some have said that there was testing of radiological weapons. And this is partly based on the fact that there was discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing of the bodies of the hikers. So it could have been the military Mm -hmm. just testing out different types of weapons. And then they had exposure. It certainly could be. I mean, the, the parachute mines kind of explain away a lot of what was seen. Yeah. But not everything. Certainly not everything. What doesn't it explain? I don't think that it explains... I mean, the tongue thing. The tongue thing still bothers me. I mean, I guess you could explain away the the scattered nature of all of the bodies if they, like, all took off in different directions. I still don't understand how bodies can fall into a ravine and not have external injury that will never make sense to me. No, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it kind of does explain most of it, but I just think there's... There are enough weird little things that don't make sense, obviously. I do, I mean, I do appreciate the explanation of the panic and, like, why they left in the way that they did. I don't know. It just, none of it, none of it makes sense. Wouldn't there be evidence... And especially since they had done a sweep and search so soon after. I mean, maybe maybe not so soon, but wouldn't there be evidence of those bombs having Yeah, I was just thinking that the off? same thing. I mean, they did find records of testing happening, and maybe there would have been some shit around because of those. But even, like, let's say they found, like, a shell of something on the mountain or, like, near to them. Just because that was taking place, it doesn't mean that's why they died the way that they died. You know, like it still gives us absolutely no insight as to like what was happening. I don't know. It's just one of those, oh, it's an all-encompassing theory, but it doesn't. These are not the only ones. There's tons of other theories. People would say that it was just animal attack. Others would say there's local individuals that live in that area of the Girl Mountains. The Manzai tribesmen could have attacked, but there's no evidence of anyone else being around. What are they? They're going to fracture someone's skull without... No. 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 (laughs) There's also a theory that this was like a love triangle gone wrong. (laughs) There was like sexual tension between some of them and then some like violent thing erupted because somebody was sleeping with someone. I don't know. But that one has been pretty much completely written off because all of their diary entries have zero indication of this. There were no drugs present. There was no alcohol. Or there was a very small flask of medicinal alcohol 
Um, they had all sworn off cigarettes for the expedition. There was nothing, like, sketchy going on here. So it wasn't, like, intense emotions or, like, a drunken whatever. Yeah. None of that was happening. It's just, it's not a good theory. That, I assume someone is going to bring that up, but that's just, like, really highly doubt yeah. that. So, ultimately, it was aliens. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to leave it. I'm on board with that. There's just... There, there's nothing else for me. It was aliens. Hey, that let's is go with it. literally the only theory that explains everything. It explains. So walk me through that. Like walk me through what that alien. I'm not saying I, I disagree, but just for like paint me a picture. Like they they were abducted and then dropped back down after they'd been tested on, and they just died from hypothermia after that i don't know if all of them were abducted i do think that part of the story is the panic of them like ripping out of the tent and leaving everything behind right so like i think that was part of it and certainly some of those people died from exposure like for sure abduction could have made sense of the burned hands of whatever might have been done Burned hands could have been something that happened in the abduction. I don't really... I One piece of the puzzle is the fire. Like, if they actually had lit a fire, not really sure how or why yeah. that happened. Abduction could make sense of the internal injuries and then those bodies being placed in the ravine instead of just, like, thrown down or being, like, tumbled down by snow. Yeah. It's so mysterious that the radiation... Mm-hmm. Just the sheer strangeness of the whole situation. And no one being able to explain anything. There's no documentation. There are no strict facts that tie any government, you know, testings or bombs or anything other than some research that maybe could be linked. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's just... There is no one explanation. That's probably why I find it so interesting and why people have found it so interesting for so long. I mean, I'm so sad for them. Like, I think regardless of what occurred, what a fucking awful and tragic way to go. I wish that we could give them that piece. Okay, I guess I'm kind of torn because part of me is so fascinated and interested in this story and all the theories that are around it. But at the same time, I wish we could just know or like one of them could just tell us so that we could like let them be at peace. But I think they're at peace. You're the one who's not at uh, peace. Yeah, I know. But like their family is yeah. like, let it just let it be. Hey, add that to the list of questions uh, to ask God. Seriously. Hey, uh, what happened, happened to the Dead Mountain? Just give me a rundown. <sighs> I love that story, though. And every time I hear it, it's something new Mm -hmm. comes up Mm -hmm. or like I see it from a different perspective. I do remember reading about it a couple years ago and just being like, what? And really just kind of leaving it at that. Just like big shrug. I have no idea what happened. That's wild. Gotta just leave it because... I yeah, guess. there just is no explanation. But one kind of nice thing to to end this with, while there is no truly official explanation as to what happened to the nine people on the expedition, there is a monument to the nine skiers at the base of the mountain that you can visit today. And there is the Diet Love Foundation, which was actually established by a man named Yuri Kuncevich. And he was the child at the funeral who said their skin looks weird. So he reappeared and established a foundation which is working to persuade the Russian government to reopen the investigation. He is straight up an alien. What? I totally forgot about him. Um, yeah. What? Yeah. That's just, okay. Yuri, we see you. Right? We love you. Although, if you were an alien, why would he be pushing the government to reopen the investigation? I just don't know why this kid cares so much. Maybe he wants to be recognized. Maybe he's like, hey, it's it's time. We just come out with it. Maybe. Maybe he's like, 
uh, you know, an anarchist. I like it. And he, he wants the truth out there. Okay, Yuri. But yeah, that's just one kind of nice thing. People do still care and they still want to find out what happens. So. Well, yeah. I mean, and whether or not they care about the people on like a personal level, it's just such a mystery. Oh my gosh, I still can't get over Yuri, though. I forgot about 12 years old going to like five different funerals of unrelated people. And then, however many years later, setting up a fund. Mm -hmm. And that is the strange and baffling and tragic and awful and sad and everything tale of the Diet Love Pass incident. Just having all of the emotions, Mm -hmm. all the questions... Mm -hmm feel like there's a pressure in my brain and my skull is cracking no no oh that was a big one my voice is tired time for some wine yeah so listeners what do you believe do you have a theory that you think it explains this away do you think it's aliens like me or maybe you have some insight on this yuri character why he cares so much and why he's always around we want to know, so tell us. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at, at Something Weird Podcast. And if you have any of your own stories, whether they're paranormal, weird, spooky, any of it, all of it, we want to hear those too. So feel free to send them our way. And if you enjoyed this week's mind-boggling, stressful story or any of our podcast episodes, please let us know with a big five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. really makes us feel good. Thank you also for sending nice things on Instagram in messages or comments or whatnot. really appreciate those things too. Well, Anna, thank you for listening. Thank you, even though you kind of knew about this already, for being no, no. Invested. I feel like it was a reawakening. Good. I'm glad. Glad you enjoyed it. And listeners, thanks for coming back. Thank you for listening again. And until next week, stay weirdy. Ooh.